Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. And today, I have a very special episode. I'm here today with Dak. Dak has helped out, if you've listened to the show, I've mentioned him a million times, has helped me out with uh, research of birds, because he's a bird researcher. Um, And uh, Dak, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Dak, just to get us started, do you mind uh, introducing yourself a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a current grad student uh, and I study biodiversity generally. I'm just interested in the communities that form and why they do. Um, But my specific research topic is biodiversity of birds on mountains. Um, So my research takes place in southwestern Yukon and uh, involves hiking up and down those mountains and stuff. So uh, been a pretty cool career choice i think yeah so thanks for having me on no thank you for being here yeah uh dak and i you know like i said uh i've thrown him in there in the credits of shows so many times because we met on like reddit and then he's just like totally helped me out with uh um finding different articles you know when i'm struggling uh researching something about a bird um Dak will just like send me the magic article that will explain <laughs> everything I wanted about like the evolution of a moa or something like that. Um, so it's it's been a thrill to meet you, man. Oh yeah, it's been fun. I I, I got off Reddit, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, um... honestly, I should get off Reddit too because I feel like sometimes I post stuff on there and like I just start getting attacked by the weird Reddit birders. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So anyways, Dak, um, so today we have been just like talking about a lot of nebulous bird research and just all these topics that interest us a lot. We finally pinned down a a couple points that we definitely want to talk about today, but I want to just kind of, you know, start it off, like open it up to you with just talking about like, what are some of the really cool experiences that you've had, uh, researching birds? Sure. Um, I have kind of had, I think, a lifetime already worth of experiences. I've been around the world, a handful of countries, to do bird research. Um, I studied in Madagascar as just a study abroad during my undergrad, but uh, part of those classes were being able to miss net birds, which we'll probably get into later, um, banding them, etc., I did a little bit of research in Australia. I was just north of Brisbane 
and um, I studied variegated fairy wrens, or at least assisted uh, oh, a, PH a PhD. They're amazing birds. Um, yes. And so I assisted a PhD candidate there, um, and then uh, my grad work took me to you know northern Canada and up near Alaska. But now I'm back in New York, where I'm studying kind of birds in my my home state, and uh, you know the species of concern here. And and what are some of those species of concern? Uh, some of the birds of concern, we've got grassland raptors. Uh, so short-eared owls and northern harriers are two state-listed species. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we've got cerulean warblers and henslows, sparrows and things. It's mostly the grassland birds that are uh, at risk just because of... Um, you know, we were an agricultural state and a lot of the Northeast was agriculture, which means if you let the grasslands grow after you uh, have finished being an agricultural area, then it makes good habitat for birds. But if you stop maintaining that grassland, it becomes shrubland. So a lot of these areas are just either succeeding or uh, and becoming shrublands or forests um, or uh, lots of solar development and exurb development, etc., is kind of putting these species at odds with uh, human development. Yeah, that kind of makes me think of uh, it's 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 so difficult with um, researching these species. We were kind of talking about this before the um, show started, as like you know where their population numbers, where where the biodiversity like actually is, because you try to think about North America before you know we started building cities in it and chopping out all the trees and everything. And we don't really have a good snapshot of what these species historically looked like. We only know kind of once we started researching them. Um, and, and it's, it's, that's really interesting as, you know, it was agriculture then became grasslands and it was really great for these species for a little bit. And then now it's kind of becoming shrubland or forest. And like, is that more of a natural process? Is that, uh, you know, more man-made it's, Right. It's a really cool question. Well, it's, 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 I think, interesting here. Um, and it kind of begs the question as to, like, what do we care about in terms of biodiversity? In New York, uh, we were glaciated. So um, 13,000 years ago, giant glacier and pretty much not much forest, or at least 13,000 years ago was the end of the Pleistocene. Um, and so after that, it kind of became this this uh, homogenous forested land where grasslands weren't even that common here. Um, you know, maybe some grassland warblers and, and shrubland warblers were here, part of the, um, the, you know, giant beavers kind of made wetlands and things like that. So <laughs> they may have been here heterogeneously around the state, but now they are just huge swaths of agricultural land. So these species that are at risk, you know, they, they might not even been a part of the community that you're talking about before we started building cities, etc. So there's kind of an arbitrary standard as to what we are protecting, as to what we are conserving. Um, and so that, that, yeah, begs the question, what are we caring about and what are we studying here? And obviously, a lot of species that do get the most attention to are like the colorful ones or the you know the good poster child ones and yeah poor Henslow's sparrow I can't, I can't feel like he has like a really uh you know great PR campaign behind him you know like he, he just looks like oh what it's, it's just a sparrow just a little brown brown bird right <laughs> yeah 
though if you know if there is a detection of the species then it can it can hold up development at least you know it, it a lot of the times knowing that there's a species at risk um is present is is kind of only a temporary matter if it leaves then you know there's no real protection of the habitat uh, so Henslow Sparrow's kind of doing its work is <laughs> helping out protecting these grasslands at least. Um, but yeah, so I, I wanted to, to talk with you about kind of this question of what biodiversity is and when, you know, we'll use birds as the topic, but, um, you know, when we talk about biodiversity conservation, we're talking about so many different concepts. It's, it's the diversity of biology and biodiversity is everything that plays into that right it's the phylogeny it's the functional traits it's the 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 ratios of species and all of that and and so that's that's mainly what i'm really interested in my work is is tracking how the communities as a whole changes from each of those facets so you got to explain that first part for me of the phylogeny and the behavioral. So this is like, oh, yeah. it's not even just like the amount of the species that are there. It's like how they're like represented, like genetically and everything too also factors in. So it's not just about having more, having more Henslow sparrows. It's like about, you know, how diverse their genome is or how diverse their behavior is. Like, am I on the right track? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so if you imagine, you know, just the tree of birds, uh, you can look at it from the taxonomic perspective, which is just like looking at each individual species, their common names, and whether or not they're present or absent, the ratios, etc. Um, or you could look at, you know, their phylogenetic distance, which is the genetic distance from each other. Uh, and basically, you can you can make decisions for conservation saying like, which species is more or less important, or which one may we have to make some sacrifices for uh, based on that. So um, if you look at a suite of three different warblers and a sparrow, then you know, there's 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 three warblers and one sparrow. So you may want to represent that sparrow rather than one of the warblers in order to protect the whole community's kind of shape, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. And it, it feels like an awful decision to have to decide between species, but that's probably where we are right now. You know, it, it's, it's where we are. And it's, um, it, I think it is going to be where we're going to be for a long time. Kind of, Oh my God. In, 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 in the, the science terminology, we call it, you know, alpha diversity. Mm-hmm. is the you know what species are in this specific location and then beta diversity is the differences between two locations and so you can conserve based on, you can make those decisions based on that beta diversity you know how different is each community if we have one forest that's very similar to another forest that's very dissimilar to the third forest then we may need to say like all right there's limited funding and uh you know, I, I, I hate that that we have this limited funding, but um, that's what the science is enabling us to do is really discern our values in, and, and make those conservation decisions, those hard management decisions. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that that is tough. And I feel like so much of this is about there's kind of a lot of factors here, like awareness, funding that you touched on, and then the actual research. Um, I definitely want to talk about like 
you know, funding and awareness and, and getting people involved. But like just to, to start us off, do you mind talking about like the general research aspect of it? Like uh, just in general, how does a uh, bird research, what does it look like, you know, for all this conservation, learning more about species? And then and then we can go into more of the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, so I think when I conceptualize like ornithology or, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about is kind of the same for other species. So we're using birds as the model, but mm -hmm. every, every other species could be kind of conceptualized well, this way. Well, birds are the most important yeah, species. Oh, they're, yeah. they're definitely. Humans, were down here. It's, it's the birds are way up here. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so so the, first, the first thing we kind of question is we, we look at kind of the distribution level. This is how I've conceptualized it where is the species kind of present? What is out there? That's kind of the question. What's out there? Um, and so to do the bird research and figure out what's out there, we have to first get out there. <laughs> um, so we do lots of times we're out in a specific location and we call it a point count where we go and we sit for a period of time just observing. And we sit and listen and we sit and watch and we mark down every species that we see in here. Uh, and that is basically the fundamental um, to ornithology is the point count. And that, that can enable us the, what's present in absence, the distribution of the species and uh, population estimates from those things. Yeah, that's like the, the fundamental. That's like getting back to John James Audubon, just sitting your ass down and and writing down every bird you hear and and everything like that yeah but the, so it's um it's a bit more than uh just you know every bird you see in here it's uh there's a there's a ton of statistical modeling that goes into this so i'll ask you i guess um how would you figure out how many birds are in a specific location okay so Luckily, I have a little bit of help on this from the articles I've read. But so you go to an area, you know, it's like, say it's like a forest and you go in this forest, you know how big the forest is. You sample a small part of the forest. So you see three birds, you know, this you're in like one fifth of a forest. So you multiply that three by five and you can estimate, well, there's 15 birds in this forest. And and basically, it, am I on the right track there? Math yeah. is not my strong suit. <laughs> no, it's that's 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 pretty much spot on. The only difference that um, can be inserted is like you know you go out and you count one bird, and it could be a very rare species. Like it could be just highly improbable that you ran into that specific mm -hmm. species. Um, and so you can model what we call the probability of detecting that species hmm. and you can use again these are complicated statistical models but um you can use variables like the forest that you're in the day that you were there the time of day that you were there the wind speed and things like that because you model the probability of you a person making that observation and oftentimes included in those models are individual names like what's the probability that you know, Dirty Bird <laughs> made the observation uh, because everyone has their own biases for what they're able to hear and what they're able to observe, what they pay attention to. Um, so it's, you know, going out and making that one count, you know, it's there. But yeah. making a population estimate off of that 
seeing that one bird may actually represent that there were three birds that you missed. So that's that's oh. kind of pretty neat. Um, and so that's called um, distance sampling or occupancy modeling, where we look at the probability of detection mm. using point counts. Yeah, no, no, that totally makes sense. Because, yeah, my model, what if one of those three birds was like, you know, an Atlantic puffin or something, you know, it's just an aberrant in there. And then I multiply that by five. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's uh, 15 Atlantic puffins in this forest. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I, you'd have to definitely, you know, probably look at that and say, I'm not going to include that in my model. <laughs> <laughs> Man, uh, this also just makes me I, I say this like every single episode, but like birds are so much like Pokemon, like, you know, oh God, yeah. po- I've been yeah, watching it, too. <laughs> just rewatching it. <laughs> <laughs> like pokemon ratatats everywhere you know but like you know you see some ho-hos or something or <laughs> oh yeah well there's you know it's I, i've always thought and i've seen a handful of times just different articles different people who have tried to do something along the lines of um pokemon game where you go out you look for the species you can encounter them you get points etc but there's like citizen science apps that really make it easy to do a little in bit in real life in yeah. real life yeah like i mean my dream is that there's pokemon go where you or pokemon snap rather you know uh-huh. but um you know ebird is very similar i guess to having a pokedex where you know you're just running your running your yeah. numbers you're just trying to trying to find them all <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, birds got them outnumbered, though. There's, like, what, like 100,000 species of birds and only, what, five, six gens of Pokemon, so. Oh, I, yeah, probably. <laughs> Step it up, I don't, know what, I don't know what they're up to with the Pokemon. <laughs> Season 20. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, what you're describing there with, like, bird research and everything, like, you know, I, I there's a ton of work that goes into it, obviously, especially the statistics, but, like, you know, what you're describing does sound, you know, pretty basic. It sounds like stuff that people could get involved in and get into. I, I think so. Yeah, I think there's, well, I'll say, I'll say two things. I think it's, it's very basic and it's becoming more basic for the everyday person, the just birders who are interested in science to get into. And that's kind of a double-edged sword for the research um, where we have a lot of pretty good people who know their stuff getting out there. And so you, you may end up with some misidentifications or mm. uh, things like that. But, you know, the goal of citizen science is to collect so much data that that doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's pretty cool. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of avenues of getting involved with citizen science. I take on, re, I, I take on um, volunteers for some of my surveys, and a lot of them are just retired birders who just still want to be involved with the conservation um and it's also getting easier just based on these apps that are coming out where they they use audio identification algorithms so you know what species it is just by holding your phone up um and that's part of what i use in my research actually is we call them automated recording units i don't actually have to be there to make these observations (laughs) anymore I don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. or 3 a.m. just to drive and hike a mountain. I can put a microphone out there and later on, you know, I'm still listening to it mm-hmm. in the lab. But um, soon it's just going to be somebody, you know, oh, we got to check of this species. I'm going to verify that. But yeah, I agree. I think the computer's right. And boom, we've checked off that species on the list. 
So, you know, future, fu- future visions for me. <laughs> I think we're going to have microphones on quadcopters. <laughs> <laughs> Some microphone drones just drop down right in front of a Blue Jay. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> sing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I also, that just, you know, this, this makes my mind just go crazy, but I could imagine all these remote listening stations and if like people were super citizen scientists involved, just, you know, in their spare time, they're just listening and just marking all the birds. And then we have all these points of data, like, oh yeah, uh, that, that would be insane. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, I know of one company right now that's working on having a backyard, like a real, like a, a backyard um automated recording unit where you can just say like hey alexa what bird is at my house right now and it'll be like oh that's a grackle just just by listening um and it also connects to and this is something that i blows my mind is uh something that they're trying to call the vulture net or the internet of wildlife Hmm. um and so i guess do you want to we could start just with the GPS tracking and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so people study birds and their movements and things like that. Like there's so many facets to ornithology. Um, but one of the facets is, you know, where do they go on migration and what habitat are they using specifically? Um, and so to get that information, we often capture the, the bird and put on a backpack that either has a GPS attached to it, or um, it can detect light, like a solar receiver mm-hmm. that detects light. And oftentimes with those, we have to recapture, but with the GPS units, you know, they're sending us text messages every five minutes telling us exactly where the bird is. Um, and so there's, there's this company that's developing what's called the Vulture Net, where you strap a backpack on to a vulture, um, and it circles around, um, you know, smaller birds that can't have the things that would have sent to a cell tower. Uh-huh. So it's basically like a roving cell tower oh, as it mi- as it migrates as it migrates <laughs> over these birds. Yeah, when they do those big circles on the thermals, you know, yeah, right. And so, like, you, you know, you're. It's not inconceivable that we have birds researching other birds, um, <laughs> and. <laughs> and with these backyard units, like this company fascinates me, but with this backyard uh, units, you know, every person who's interested in birds might have a recorder in their yard. And then we can have very fine scale data of oh. where these distributions are, when the species arrives, things like that. Uh, we're, we're, we're rapidly approaching automated ornithology. <laughs> that sounds incredible. And hey, I mean... You know, if I have a recorder in my backyard, that's also bragging rights for me too. Like, look how many birds are coming over to my yard. I got, I got that best suet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's putting out the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I got mealworms out there. The birds love me. They hate you. <laughs> he he listens to Dirty Bird podcast. <laughs> See the episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's so cool. And then, okay, all right, you got to also explain to me, what is the thing with clouds with researching birds? Oh, yeah. So um, we have hundreds of satellites up in space or near, you know, near orbit. Um, and some of them through NASA 
they take high resolution photographs. Um, so there's one called MODIS, which honestly I'm forgetting what it stands for because we just always mobile operating uh, diurnal. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you're honestly you're probably spot on. I can the Google S it right now. The S is definitely satellite. The S yeah. is totally satellite. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, but so this thing's taking pictures very consistently, and um, it's used for measuring the change of color and things like that. So if it's a different season, a tree is going to look a different color. If it's the beginning of the season, it might be lighter green, etc. And that might not be perceivable to us, but we can calculate the change based on the pixel values of of these things. And we can look at that and say, like, what's the density of green? and measure things like the primary productivity of a certain region. You know, how warm is it? How much growth is there per year? And as a um, kind of a relic or, uh, you know, usually people don't like it because if there's a if there's a cloud in the way, you can't see the trees. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, people usually model out the clouds to kind of get more accurate things. But it's... Um, in order to get precipitation values for some of your locations, often what's done is called interpolation, where if you have two weather stations, you can calculate kind of what's in the middle. You know, it's raining here, it's not raining here, maybe it's raining in the middle. Mm-hmm. How much is it raining? And that's pretty inaccurate, especially for these really out there sites and mountainous oh, yeah. things. My, my local weatherman can attest to that. <laughs> He's <Yeah>. always wrong. <laughs> 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 yeah. So so for for these models and again those those models of calculating the probability of detection, you know, that's based sometimes on precipitation or the distribution of a species may be based on whether or not it rains a certain amount because they follow a certain insect, etc. And um so there's an interesting thing you can do is distribute figure out the distribution of a bird based on where the clouds are. There's a recently published paper where uh, you model the density of the clouds, like how often are they in a picture? And uh, so you look at, you know, a week and there's always a cloud in one location. That's probably where the rain is going to be. And so you use that as an index of where the rain is, which is a better index than the interpolated value. And so they have shown that sometimes it's better to use this cloud distribution to figure out where the salamanders are. And mm-hmm. it's, it's often good to use for these birds. Yeah. Like mar- marsh wrens, like they're, they're going to be hanging out underneath all that dreary, drizzly cloud. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very likely. There's probably a lot of things that aren't necessary to use. Like, you know, a grassland species maybe follows the clouds, but it's easier to model using a certain thing. But like, mm-hmm. I think it's just so cool. You can model the birds with the clouds, you know, it's, it's comes full circle. <laughs> yeah. You would never think of that. That's so cool, man. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, so man, we've, we've talked a lot about, uh, research so far. I mean, I, I feel like there's so much stuff that we can, we can go on about. Um, but like, uh, also, uh, you were talking about lidar too and using that oh yeah yeah that's i mean that's heavily related to this modus apparatus you know they've got um a handful of satellites that shoot lasers to the ground and at times the 
you know, how long it takes for the detector to detect the reflection of that laser. And based on that, you can figure out topography, things like that. But uh, it's getting more and more fine scale. So you can model uh, a single shrub in the middle of a in the middle of a field uh, with with lidar from space. Uh, but also, I just found an app where you can do it with your new iPhone. <laughs> Holy shit! So. so people could literally like, I mean, I'd probably talk in the future, but like could literally map out their landscape <laughs> oh not in the future like right yeah right, right now, now. <laughs> i think i think uh it, it's gonna take a lot of you know memory to do it but you, yeah. you i was i was walking around with it the other day you you scan a tree and it measures it like it just tells you how big the tree is and then it gives you a three-dimensional model of it right on your phone takes you know two seconds it's it's incredible wow that is nuts oh my god I, I can just imagine the future, the, you know, computer prediction as like AI gets better and stuff like they'll probably be able to tell us like migration routes and, you know, where birds are going to be predicted, like birders are going to be using like AI predictive models and stuff. Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 I hope that I don't hope at the same time. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, there's, it's interesting, like you kind of already can and there's an, there's a website out there, I forget the name, that's like bird forecasting oh but, uh, really? yeah it's you know and to relate that to the weather forecast it's just anecdotally or uh oh, tangentially gotcha. sorry you can see um birds on radar scans or like you know the weather does the doppler radar mm-hmm. you can see large masses of birds move through there so you can kind of make predictions as to when they're moving through um but i i say i don't hope that it goes that way because we lose a lot of the interpersonal connection to the to it right like i love being in the field i love working with hands-on with these animals and um you know doing it to conserve the species but if we go entirely automated you know it's it's a lot of trust in these in these algorithms and systems Mm -hmm. and uh we also lose a whole lot of connection to the land so uh it's a again a double-edged sword with this with this I, I totally agree because there's, you know, you look up a picture of, you know, a pileated woodpecker and like, you're like, oh, it, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a big bird. But like seeing it in the field, there is nothing that can, I mean, that takes your breath away and there's nothing that can substitute for that. And then I'll hit you with another thing I just randomly thought of and also might lead into a, another topic. But um, if, if it was automated where you could predict the birds are, like I could just imagine, um, hunters using that like and and you know i'm i'm fine with hunting you know with lawful hunting and everything but like i could just imagine like you know you see some ducks coming and you're like oh i'm predicting that they're uh landing here and then it's just a crap shoot like yeah come on that's not even fair yeah um, i i don't think it'll ever be that fine scale not that uh, good you know but <laughs> you, you don't need the, the thing is, and what's really cool, I'm not a hunter, um, you know, but it's it hunters have one of the most connections to the outside world. Because you know, they're the ones out there. They're yeah. the ones out there. You know, birders rec- recreationally like the birds. They watch the birds. Hunters are out there sometimes for subsistence. Um, mm-hmm. So their their livelihoods sometimes depend on, on being there. So they are more attuned and would probably be able to say like oh there's there's snow coming in 
that means the snow geese are coming in like <laughs> they usually come in in this way but mm-hmm. uh I, yeah so so definitely i i i i i would am for the automation in so far as it liberates me from needing to be up at 4 a.m. to do a small task. I would rather be out there catching dragonflies because that's what the birds are eating. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it automatically records and then identifies so I can do other things that help the birds. Well, nice, man. Um, and just to launch back a little bit to to what we touched upon with like hunting and stuff. So we were talking about this before the show, just kind of... Um, my whole understanding of state parks and a lot of national parks and a lot of the places that we we love as naturalists um, are, you know, funded by, you know, your fishing license, your hunting license, that kind of the protection, you know, the, those fish and wildlife people that are keeping people from, uh, you know, over harvesting or, or anything like that and, uh, and are making the regulations to ensure that it's sustainable hunting and sustainable fishing kind of my understanding was that it was all funded, you know, mostly by hunters and then, you know, uh, a lot of birders or hikers, we kind of get to enjoy it for free. But you were also enlightening me on some other uh, funding areas that, uh, I don't know, might muddle the waters a little bit. And I think it's something that's pretty little known. So I would I would love for you to talk about it. Yeah, I think um, it, it is little known. And I think it's it is a sore spot for a lot of people in conservation because, um, you know, it's how we get our money, but a lot of people these days kind of just don't agree with how we get our money. Um, so like I said, I'm, I, you know, hunting helps keep deer populations down and they're mm-hmm. the most connected to the land, etc. cetera. Uh, but we call it the Pittman Robertson act, which is, uh, an excise tax on sporting arms, ammunition, archery equipment. Uh, and so that's an 11% tax on all of those guns and ammo, and a 10% tax on handguns. Um, and all of that goes to funding at the federal level, and then they distribute it to lower levels. So the states get funding from the Pittman-Robertson Act. But um, yeah, it's it's just a tax on guns and ammo and hunting licenses. But technically, you know, any, um, any you know, tragedy that occurs that involves a gun, uh, in some small way helped conservation and so it's it's Mm. kind of a it's kind of a perverse incentive right now to maintain the Pittman robertson act or to to not find other avenues of funding because if we you know maintain it or we get rid of it then how do we fund conservation yeah no that's a really good question because like regardless of whatever you feel about gun control or whatever like it doesn't seem like a very sustainable uh, source of income for our conservation efforts is to just rely on gun and archery sales. Like, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't, I don't want to misrepresent it. There's other avenues of conservation yes, funding yes, for right. sure. I mean, but ten percent um, of every, I mean, that that's probably a big, uh, big inflow. It's a, it's a big, it's a sizable chunk, and it, you know, it's also, you know, the Fisher get it. There's the Dingle Johnson Act, which is a similar tax on. Uh, fishing rods and tackle and things like that um, it, but there was and continuously these proposals come about um, there's proposals for taxing sporting equipment or binoculars and things like that and recently and I say recently as in like the past decade um, <laughs> there was an effort that was put forward to uh, to Congress and uh, it was lobbied against because a lot of birders, they do 
already donate to these private conservation right. funds, these not for profits. Um, but it seems like a lot of people would also be willing to pay this tax. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then before I forget, like you can buy what's called a duck stamp, which is, uh, just you straight up are just buying the capacity to take and harvest the duck, but you don't need to. And so I encourage everybody to just buy a duck stamp. It's, it's not that expensive and it directly funds conservation. Mm. Um, but those are those are the avenues that aren't kind of this perverse incentive. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very interesting and a quagmire to discuss. Aren't the duck stamp too? Isn't there like a contest every year for who designs like the artwork of it and everything? And it's always like a big big deal whoever wins it, you know, like because they have to feature the the wildlife, but then also some aspect of like hunting or or you know like and. It's always a, a really di- kind of difficult art project, but always really cool. Well, it's I, I mean, the artwork on it's phenomenal. Uh, people people collect it just for the artwork. You know, it's new yeah. every it's new every year. Um, and yeah, it's like I think it's twenty five dollars and it's just a direct contribution to to, to wildlife um, really helps purchases land. It, it funds wildlife and it helps maintain kind of these wildlife refuges and things like that. So. Man, that's yeah, that's a win-win-win. Support ducks, get some cool artwork, and uh, you know, if you need to harvest one, then then you can go harvest one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. Um, that was a great explanation. Thank you so much, and I, I love how you love all the acts too. I'd get lost in the Dingleberry Act or whatever, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> um, well, man, what do you want to talk about next? Uh. So I'm, I'm big in the numbers. Like I like to study, like I said, you know, what is a species? What is a community? What is a biodiversity generally? And so you can look at all of that from arbitrary scales. I can look at the tree behind my house and, and call that like, what's the community of birds that uses this specific tree? But like, that's a little <laughs> pointless. I mean, it's nice. It's nice for me to know. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, 10 robins (laughs) (laughs) but you know if that if that 10 robins is consistent and then suddenly changes it would indicate yeah it indicates my neighbor is setting out rat poison (laughs) oh no (laughs) don't do that folks um but so you know we talk a lot about biodiversity loss and it's definitely a thing that we are in a mass extinction Mm -hmm. and, and losing species but what we don't see currently is you know we're not we're not mourning the loss of species on a daily basis because these are really protracted declines of populations that eventually lead to us being like oh no the ivory-billed woodpecker isn't there anymore it took us like 20 years to make that decision um but you know so i'll 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 i want to discuss a paper that came out a couple years ago now in 2019 that um well, I'll, I'll ask you, you know, what's the biomass of birds in the world? The biomass of birds. All right. What, what are we talking? We're talking pounds, kilograms. What are the, uh, uh, so the figure tons? that I, the figure <laughs> that I have is gigatons of carbon. Gigatons of carbon in birds. Okay. Um, hmm. I'm going to go 200 million gigatons of carbon. 200 million gigatons. Okay. Of carbon. That's a lot. That's a lot. of tons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go. <laughs> Two hundred thousand. 
200,000 gigatons. I think uh, you're thinking 200,000 tons, okay, uh, right? That's probably why. So, so uh, you know, humans are 0. 0.06 gigatons of carbon. Okay, you know, you I need a scale of reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so wild birds, if you were to put that against people, you know, what is it roughly? If you take every single bird in the world. Not okay, and humans are 0.6, he said. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think I think they're probably more than us. So I'm going to say, just based on how many how starlings outnumber people in Virginia Beach, um, I'm going to go like 1.2 gigatons. 1.2 gigatons. So uh, animals total? including people is two gigatons oh just you know of of the it's approximately uh 540 i think it is gigatons of biomass oh in, including plants and things like that animals okay. are two gigatons including people uh, wow so do you want to know birds yes every single bird that's not related to livestock is 0. 0.002 gigatons no right Livestock is 0.1 gigatons. So no! live, livestock, oh livestock out, uh, you know, gigatons us by an order of magnitude, and we out gigaton, you know, wild birds by an order of magnitude, and uh, wild mammals is 0.007. And so, oh, God, right? <laughs> I was uh, so off. I was so optimistic. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> And so it's 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 uh it's really just a, an interesting ratio. The community of birds, the global community of birds, is so minute compared to livestock and humans. Um, and so that's at the global level. But if you look, if if you if you come in a little bit, you know, shorter to just North America, uh, like I said, we're not losing species right now exactly. But there, it's a long protracted loss of population. So, approximately how many birds have we lost since 1970? Are you familiar with the the, the paper or anything? I'm not. So please enlighten me. Sure. Uh, for ver- various reasons, and it's not every single species. Some species are increasing, um, but we have lost approximately 30 percent of the individual birds that were in north america since 1970 which equates to about three billion birds um and so it's 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 a you know it's it's piecemeal separation of i say that because we're parcelizing places and and building exurbs and things like that destroying habitat um and we do that under the premise that like it's a little bit it's fine or, yeah, like, uh, it adds up. you know, it's just my farm that I'm spraying these mm-hmm. pesticides that could potentially destroy populations. Um, and so right now, uh, there's discussions at pretty much every level of governance of like, you know, what are we going to do about this? And it's, it's really heartening to hear, but it's interesting because there's this premise of a, a shifting baseline. So we started the conversation with, you know, are we trying to go back to pre-Pleistocene communities? Are we trying to conserve grassland species in New York? Like, yes, I am. I like grassland species, <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, what are the levels that we're trying to conserve? And we're basing our observations of the levels that we're trying to conserve off of very um, inaccurate measurements 
back in the day, they didn't have these fine scale statistical tools to make these assessments of population. And so the assessment that 30% has been lost, it could be wildly, you know, different from what could have been or what Mm -hmm. really, really was there before we started measuring things. Um, uh, And so, you know, what are we trying to get back to is in my eyes, um, an interesting question, but it's more of a question of what can we maintain for conservation and where do we want to go? How do we want to integrate our grasslands and our agricultural lands to sustain populations and grow us a couple of potatoes? (laughs) (laughs) Dude, and these are the big and the difficult questions. It's so easy to like, you know, be like, let's save the spotted owl or whatever, you know, but like, actually discussing like okay what does that entail like what yeah wh- where are we moving forward with the with the balance you know i yeah. mean what did you say it was it's point point one and then point zero six for for livestock versus humans and then everything else is just tiny 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 like like where are we trying to go with with that balance um and then an, another thing i just wanted to say too is uh uh i wasn't familiar with the 30 percent. i knew that there was a big decline but also um uh, I knew that of that decline, the rarer species are disproportionately impacted. Like, mm-hmm. you know, common things remain common, basically. And, you know, your robins, your blue jay, you know, all, all those backyard birds, like, you know, may, they might be declining, but they're doing okay. But, you know, you got your, like, these warbler species that are just getting decimated, like red sure. starts and, like, gross beaks are just, like, you know, totally dying off. Yeah. And, and so it's, you know, one thing that my professors would say is, you know, no one pays attention to the common species simply because they're common. And so there's, in a lot of our policies, there's no protections for common species, mm. right? So we look at these, these communities of, of organisms, and you may go to a forest that has a proposed development on it, for, for example, and you can count any amount of bird any amount of, you know, biodiversity, beta diversity from a nearby forest, as we discussed earlier, you can, you can measure all of those things, but there's no policy right now that protects those things unless it's uh, an explicit project or something like that. Um, So, you know, you might have something that is locally rare, but like at the state level, you know, it's doing pretty well. And so that locally rare thing doesn't have protection because like at the state level, it's doing okay. But, you know, do we care about that locally rare thing at a local level is, is kind of my platform, my soapbox, I suppose. Um, and, and, um, so understanding how different is my backyard from my neighbor's backyard and how different is the forest down the road from the forest on the other side of town. Like those are very important questions that kind of get uh, homogenized. Um, And that homogenization we actually see in the species themselves. So we're driving evolution of species towards kind of more basic species. And I'm quoting basic because, you know, they're not specialists, they're generalists. Yes, they're able to work around us fucking everything up (laughs) right yeah or they're able to just tolerate you know these wild thermal shifts because they're like okay Mm -hmm. with that they don't have a very small thermal niche and things like that or they can eat anything we throw at them they love invasive species 
And so we homogenize our forests, we homogenize the communities. And so what we do at a local level is being directly reflected in the genes of birds. And so that, again, that's the the biodiversity. It's the phylogeny, it's the functional trait, it's the ratio of species to different things. And the only thing that we have protection for in our policies right now is... um, is is the rare and endangered or the this the species of concern because we are as a country and as a state and things like that kind of this emergency room conservation where we're doing triage <laughs> we're doing triage and and instead of uh you know preventative medicine for example <laughs> oh dude hey you know i'm loving that metaphor <laughs> <laughs> we need more health maintenance on the on the all the birds <laughs> Um, also what, what you made me think of is, you know, with your local forestry or local spot, like, I don't know if, uh, people have experienced this or if you've experienced this where, um, there's a spot that you birded at, like me personally, there was a uh, national forest, um, area I went to and, uh, I went back to it at one point and like, I, I like knew the birds there, you know, like. I knew like woodpecker nesting holes, like all kinds of stuff. And it had been, uh, harvested and I didn't even know it was going to be harvested. And I'm like, you know, it's totally legal. It was a uh, national forest land set aside for this, but um, it was really kind of emotionally devastating when, you know, and especially at the time it got harvested, I'm just imagining there was probably, you know, even nestlings and eggs and stuff. And I'm like, but you know, it was all common species. Like there's nothing you really could have done to, you know, save it. It's all chickadees and, you know, downy woodpeckers and stuff like they're everywhere, but like still like, that kind of personal devastation, like it kind of, it makes you appreciate these, these little local areas more. And like, uh, I don't know, it's important that they get saved. I, I don't know. We don't need another Rite Aid or whatever. Like, you know, we, we need, we need our little forested areas. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's great that you left with that premise that we need the little forested areas. Uh, one thing in the ecological realm and the conservation realm, but again, we're using birds here as the model, um, is what we call the sloss debate. Debate, quote unquote. Hmm. Uh, So it's a question of what's more effective for conserving species? Do you want to have a single large tract of land? uh, Like the national parks, kind of the model we have now. Yeah. Or do we want to have kind of several small tracts of land that sum up to the large tract of land and the question for a lot of species is like yes we want all of it (laughs) both we need habitat we want to live Um, but um for biodiversity it's a very interesting question because um you know why would you expect to have more biodiversity in a very large area might be different from why you might expect more biodiversity mm-hmm. in those many small areas. Are, it, it really depends on the evolution of the species. Like, is it more of a generalist? What's this community that you're looking at? Is it filled with generalists or is it filled with specialists? If it's specialists, maybe they want a very large tract of land. But if it's generalists, maybe there's no difference between the sizes. And mm-hmm. It's uh, right now it's it's becoming more prevalent to kind of have this conversation again, because a lot of conservation entities have kind of taken it for granted that the single large tract of land is what we need to protect. It's easier to protect. We can have a model. We can 
you know, maintain it mm-hmm. easier. But, you know, a lot of these species, they may be nomadic and they may not care that there's a forest on one hand and a, for- a forest on the other side of town or the edge of things may be beneficial for them. And so it's it's a uh, f- figuring out how fragmentation impacts all of these species, because that's what we do. We fragment these populations when when we make developments, when we make a harvest and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, the sing- single large, several small question may be answered in the future using these really large scale citizen science networks, because we have data from very remote places that we're not really targeting. But, you know, we have birders out there looking for them. Um, and so using eBird like might be a way to answer that question, because you've gone somewhere that no one's ever been before. And you've made a list of what's there. And that list may be entirely different from the forest across town. Minutely, similar species, but still different in terms of the ratios of the populations and things like that. So I would encourage folks to, like, get out there. Just look and log it if you want to. You know, eBird, your things, iNaturalist is great. Um, But just logging those and getting a large database of observations is, is very helpful to the science. Yeah, no, super helpful. And uh, just getting people aware and involved is like so much a part of it. Because like, I mean, I always consider myself an outdoors person, you know, I was like a Boy Scout and everything. But like, I don't think I really got to where I'm like seeing each individual tree. And it's not like I'm going up and hugging the tree and like, loving it. But like seeing each individual tree, like, that's an important part of this, like ecosystem, you know, like, um, until I got into to birds, I think maybe that was just my vehicle. And I think that's a, a good vehicle for a lot of people to start appreciating um, uh, just a lot of the nature in their in their area and stuff and appreciate native plants and creating a little ecosystem, you know, in their own backyard or preserving ecosystems in their local area. Um, I just think birds are a great way to propel that. Um, but in my like my uh, bird feeder episode, I kind of talk about like uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, scientists and researchers are like, yeah, bird feeders maybe aren't the best thing for birds, like maybe possibly harmful. But the fact that they get people involved in bird conservation is like probably more beneficial than like a couple bird feeders, like poisoning a bird or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, I, I encourage people all the time, and I'm militant about this. I've replaced my lawn and am kind of embattled with the town about it. Um, but <laughs> we, you know, we've we've put out these native plants, and again, there's kind of these ordinances that prevent people from just not mowing their lawn, which is beneficial to biodiversity. You're not yeah. literally destroying it, but um, so it definitely the native plant thing is is something that's top of the list for me for for Mm -hmm. for how to rectify this three billion birds you know like how do we get them back but i had uh yeah bill wallauer on the show uh um jane goodall's uh cinematographer and he Mm. was talking a lot about this too right with how he turned his backyard into like a native area and he gets he said he gets some of the most amazing wildlife photography that like you know just in his own backyard yeah uh, because of the environment he's created yes yeah the the i listened to that episode it's just definitely a good hallmark for it oh man uh so yeah i mean getting that native diversity out there i think is for me the top thing for making 
you know, biodiversity come back, um, helping along that, that 3 billion birds. Um, so I view kind of ornithology and communities and things like that as kind of the intersection of a lot of gradients, if, if you know what I mean. We experience on a daily basis, like as we walk from our house to the mailbox, a difference in temperature and a difference in maybe humidity. And if you look at the soil, you're definitely experiencing a difference in pH, for example. So it may be more acidic or more basic. Mm-hmm. And those those things can directly influence what plants can grow and things like that. But at the community level, like we're talking about birds, but you can call inter, you know, multiple phylogenies, multiple organisms, a community. So I could have a, you know, a, a spider and a bird and a dog, and that's an ecosystem. Um and we can look at those and we can model our own backyards as an ecosystem, for example, and we can look at it at many different scales. So you mentioned, you know, you look at an individual tree and you're like, well, what's what's up there? I know this tree, things like that. Well, that that tree is home to a lot, an infinitesimal amount of bacteria and fungus and things like mm-hmm. that. And insects and, insects yeah, and all of that. that. Um, but you could quantify kind of the alpha diversity, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, just what Mm -hmm. is the number of species of that tree and compare it directly to another tree. And so we're, we're, we're making fun of the robins, right? Like what, what, what's in my backyard? (laughs) We got 10 robins out there, but that is, that's a very interesting question. And again, might help kind of solve this, this single, large, several small kind of question is, is very fine scale looking at differences of, of what the community um, ratios are and, and the, the, just the beta diversity between trees. And so again, like that citizen science is, is, is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I love it. And I need to get more involved in it too. Um, you know, I've uh, for the show, I read so many papers and, you know, beyond the just, the statistics they do, which is way, way beyond me. Um, but like a lot of the like field research I see in the papers, I'm like, I could do that. I just, you know, I need the time. I mean, we, we talked about great ways people can, can do it on this show. And like everyone, like let's get involved, you know, record your stuff on eBird or even the best way to get involved is what we just talk about. Make, make your backyard a, uh, or your front yard. If your HOA will allow it a, um, (laughs) an ecosystem, you know, and, uh, and preserve those areas uh, in your localities. Yeah, for sure. And if, if you're, if you're interested or a hobbyist scientist that wants to do a little bit more, um, again, like, you know, we talked about point counts earlier, you could get a lot more fine scale data if you kind of time how long you're out there looking and figure out what time you heard the individual bird within the 10 minutes that you were out there looking, uh, and, and actually the distance away from you can be can enable you to figure out the population of birds that are there. So if you see it 50 meters away, that might be worth two birds rather than the one that you saw 25 meters away, which might only be worth the one. So you're kind of, <laughs> it's interesting because you're really questioning, you know, how many uh, uh, two birds in a bush or whatever that <laughs> saying <Yeah>. is. <laughs> One in the hand, two in the bush. Yeah, yeah one, one in the hand is worth one in the hand, but you know it's worth two in the bush. That's exactly that's exactly what distance sampling is, I say. 
<laughs> now I can say I understand distance sampling. Just yeah. using that anecdote. Awesome. Um, and then you said uh, you have people volunteer with you sometimes. How how would someone like reach out to a local college or organization or I don't know? I, I think there's a lot of. Um... Uh, I guess you know we 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 I conceptualize colleges and organizations like the ivory tower, and it's inti- <laughs> it's intimidating to approach, but like you know it's really just an email, and the professors and the researchers they're busy people, but like also if you're willing to do free labor and you like birds, it's it's you know that's how you can really get involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might send you to some forest you've never they've never looked at they might have you on just for a day to shadow them. Um, yeah. And, and so if, if you're interested in getting into research, having a little bit of experience prior to making applications to schools and things like that, you know, saying like, Hey, like I had this experience doing point counts with in my backyard, you know, that's, that's huge, especially, you know, going into kind of the job market and things right now conservation and and people who are studying wildlife they're coming from urban places and have never been in the forest so having a little bit of 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 research in your belt is huge for for getting jobs and things like that as well that's awesome and i know we have a couple people that listen to the show too that are um just kind of getting into uh like are in college getting into birding career and then uh also uh Dolly and Bib too. Um, shout out to them. But in uh, Harrisonburg on their farm, they they let researchers from JMU come. So Sweet. I know we got some listeners involved in research. Keep keep at it, and then uh, other people too. Let's get involved, and I should get involved more too. Well, um, I'll, if I may, yes. I'll, I'll mention for them. There's a website called uh, I think it's BirderCertifications.com, um, and you know anyone can do it. Um, but it is a they're trying to standardize basically what it means to be able to do a point count. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit of a test. You know, you, you got to be able to ID the species in your conservation region. Uh, but, you know, it's something to put on a resume and it takes if you know how if you know how to do it, it takes very quick. You know, you can just say I'm certified as a birder uh, and hmm. more more and more researchers who are doing point counts are requiring their technicians to be certified before they go in the field. Um, and you know, it's, it's also just a really fun test. Yeah, I know. I want to know what my score is going to (laughs) be. Um, and then there's a couple of websites that are open for training. Uh, nature instruct is, is, is I think phenomenal. That gives you species distributions. Uh, it's basically a field guide on your computer, but you can make playlists for what species you want to train you just want to look at the warblers, you select the warblers. If you just want to look at uh, what they look like in hand, so you can age and sex the bird, you know how old it is and what, what sex it is, uh, there's also a separate thing of just pictures of birds in hand and how to identify wow. them. Um, that is crazy. Yeah, so I'll, I, I'll send you all these you know citations and references to put up Hell wherever yeah. you put them up. Uh, yep. But it's, you know, Birder Certification and, and Nature Instruct are both phenomenal resources. And everyone check the uh, show description for, for these links. Citations are important in science. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, Dak, we could we could honestly go on forever. This has been like so much fun talking about all this stuff. And I, I love how we're, 
We're both passionate about nitty-gritty details, but uh, we've gone on some good, like, hypothetical explorations, too, which are also kind of my favorite. <laughs> oh, yeah, we just, I could go on for hours, tangents, and <laughs> birds will take you there, because every, every species needs its own, you know, research, and you can do it at any level, be, yep. it, be it in hand, catching them, looking at their genetics, looking at their distributions, or relating them to other species it's anything you can imagine you can do work with birds yep for sure um yeah so much to know um as as my episodes have shown i mean i do so much research on them and it's still even in my like hour plus long episodes i'm like i feel like i'm just scratching the surface (laughs) um but anyway before we finish up dak um i would just love to end with like each of us talking about um and and i can go first on like just one great, amazing experience we've had with a bird. Um, and I'll, I'll, I can go first with one recently that I had that uh, was just kind of, you know, one of those wow moments that just keeps me really involved. Um, and it was First Landing State Park near he, here in Virginia Beach where I'm recording. Um, there's some pretty swampy areas, and I was kind of wandering a little off trail a little bit. Ended up, uh, you know, my boots maybe uh little little overflowing with mud in a cypress swamp but um i i was trying to chase down there were these northern flickers and i could i could hear them i couldn't see them i was trying to find them um but anyway um i i was just kind of stopped there in the mud and was looking around and i was like that looks like a carolina wren you know it's running around i'm like but it's so tiny and then like it it came up so close to me it's darting around the cypress roots and I was even able to, like, put it in my binoculars so it looks so close. And I realized, I'm like, oh, my God, that's a marsh wren. And for some reason, I've just never seen a marsh wren before. Um, and then just observing it in its little mouse-like behavior, so much like a Carolina wren and a winter wren, but, like, also so different. Like, I, it just – and, like, this is just a special little species that only likes this little swamp area. And I was just like – looking at the whole world and how fragile it is and how like fragile this little species is, but also how strong and cool it is. It was just a cool moment for me. Um, so I, that also just relates to everything we were talking about. So I, I just had to share it. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's phenomenal when you're out there and you're like visited by this thing that you've never seen. And you're like, Oh my gosh. Like, and (laughs) I think it's adorable. Like they're just tiny. Like, so it's, it's the species is adorable, but then like the fact that I have this reaction is just like, and and this tiny bird is making me do it. It's like, Oh man, like uh, masculine is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing more masculine than birding. And looking at adorable little warblers. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, you're so cute. <laughs> uh, it's it's. I mean, for me, it's. I can't really pin down what made me want to get into birds. Like I've always had a proclivity to like watch them, just because they're energetic. They're everywhere, and I had an interest in a girl in undergrad who also liked birds so i was like all right like let's get into birds a little bit (laughs) um but i think for me the best experience birding uh i mean you have the best experiences when you first start because all of them are new yes (laughs) Um, but 
my my birding like i like i said i was i did a study abroad in madagascar and i kept track of the species that were there and i had this epic day with the only other person who was remotely interested in birds most of the people who were there are kind of interested in the the people aspect and the culture and like mm. you know that's interesting too where they wanted to study lemurs and like yeah. yeah i was there to actually question if i wanted to do ornithology or primatology uh, really cliche. And, Zabumafu uh, or Zazu? Zabumafu, like, got me for sure into conservation. But, um, um, but yeah, so we had just gotten, had this epic day of driving caravan style with a handful of uh, pickup trucks down a sandy highway. Like, it's just not maintained. They don't really have highways in Madagascar. And we had just gone down to one of the most southern national parks to see flamingos. But we were both, my, my, this person who was interested in birding as well, we were really hoping to see a hoopoe or a hoopo. I never know how to pronounce it. But like the things are amazing. And I think you said you had a, an episode on it or, yes, or doing one. Yes, I just one. put one out. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. About the Madagascar so, hoopoe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so. You know, we were looking for it all day. We're in the baobabs and I'm like looking around and it's amazing. You know, baobabs are great and I'm looking for Mm -hmm. it. But I'm also subtly disappointed that like I spent this whole day looking for this one species. And that's kind of that's kind of it. Like I was I was resolved that like I'm never going to see this species. It's fine. And, And just as I'm thinking this, you know, the sun was almost starting to set and we were just about ready to get into the trucks and our uh the advisor for the class, the guy who's maintaining the logistics and things like that, the one who was interested in birds, just comes sprinting around the corner. He's going, the hoopoo, <laughs> the hoopoo, it's here. And so we like, he and I just kind of like wandered off away from everybody else to admire these two little little birds just like hanging out. And have, we, we, come, we come back to the group and they're all just shaking their heads. And I'm just like, but we saw it. <laughs> Yep, I have totally had that when I freak out about a bird and other people are like, what the hell? Yeah. Like, the goldfinches. And they're like, <laughs> you don't, dude, that is awesome. You don't know unless you know. <laughs> yes, yes. We're, we're part of an exclusive, very masculine club of, <laughs> of people who get <laughs> totally freaked out whenever they see a cute bird. <laughs> Well, dude, Dak, thank you so much for talking with me. This has been an amazing time. I we got to talk again at some point too, and yeah. maybe I don't know if we should be more structured or not. I I love this kind of free form, just exploring everything. It's been both. Uh, it, I mean, it's been a pleasure to be here, but the the free form is kind of just how I've structured my life if you can say that free form is structuring <laughs> and uh it's helped in a lot of ways for research because it takes you down rabbit holes also doesn't help for research because it takes you down <laughs> rabbit holes <laughs> oh man well thank you so much for uh for talking here and yeah um check out the links for this episode i'll, I'll link some of the stuff uh the websites at uh Dak provided and uh you know let me know what you guys think too dirty birders out there all right um anything else Dak? anything i forgot no i think i mean i've talked (laughs) (laughs) well stay dirty fellow birdies
Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Jungle, I might get into a little rumble.